Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we're now halfway through Spooktober 2020. And by now, I hope we're all feeling creeped and contemplative in equal measure. I think I am. Uh, Let's start off with a quick review from Apple Podcasts from one of our delightful listeners before we wade into this week's spooky swamp. This one is from Ballet Teacher. Amber and Anna brighten my day. It is such a treat to listen to two hosts who are so funny and obviously passionate about archaeology and anthropology. And you, listeners, you brighten our days with your reviews. So keep leaving them. They really do help us out a whole bunch. All right, Amber, let's get to the spook. Okay. Well, um, before we get to it, we can talk about something else that brightens our, our days, and that's messages from our listeners. Yeah. So I've got two updates for the two episodes that have happened already for Spooktober this year. This is great. Feeling in the mix. Um, So um, for our hands episode, Mm -hmm. um, episode 109, um, listener Savannah reached out to us with her hands um, to give us a little bit in her words, a little tidbit of info. Spittle is often short for or derived from hospital, which she very helpfully capitalized hoss. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this was in reference to the spittle in on Stainmore, yes. which came out of the one of the Hand of Glory stories from, and, from episode um, 109. And Savannah goes on to, clear, to say, as in hospital fields in London. <laughs> this area was once home to a hospital. The upsetting, How about that? yeah, the upsetting sounding Stainmore derives from <laughs> Stony Moor. So basically, Spittle in Stainmore just means the inn near the hospital on the Stony Moor. I could appreciate shortening that phrase. However, <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. So that's a little yeah. a little fun fact. So I mm-hmm. from now on when I go see my primary care physician, mm, I am ex- exclusively referring to it as the spittle. Um, and then, like super late breaking update, um, last, well, what for you will be last week, um, our episode um, about the Indian burial ground trope. Um, mm-hmm. I raved about the writer Colin Dickey, who mm-hmm. um, wrote... Ghostland. Uh, Ghostland. He is um, very aptly the guest on the most recent episode of um, Monster Talk, which, which you've also which referenced, I've also on the show referenced 62 times. Yes. So, all, like the great convergence. So, if you want to hear about his new book, you can listen to Monster Talk. And if you want to hear about other spooky things, um, you can listen to Monster Talk. So, <laughs> If you want to realize that there's a small dog in the room, just listen to our podcast. So this week, 
we are going to talk about ordeals because I was trying to, as I was preparing for this, this month of Spooktober episodes, I was thinking like, ah, what can I do? What's Halloween-y? Like, what's a jumping off point? And so I was thinking ordeals because one of the things, as you will learn, for which one can see an ordeal is we itches. We itches. So um, not to be all Webster's Dictionary defines about it, but we should probably (laughs) start with the etymology of ordeal, which has a meaning that most likely is not related to the way you felt the last time you had to call your Internet service provider. Which I feel like is is almost a universal (laughs) experience. I think that's that's a well chosen, (laughs) well chosen analogy. Yeah. Um, So old English ordeal or ordeal of a Germanic origin. Um, it's related to the German urteilen, meaning to give judgment, from a base meaning of share out. Mm. Um, so the word isn't found in Middle English, except once in Chaucer's Troilus. Chaucer? Um, so oh, mod- Jeffrey. <laughs> modern use of, of ordeal in the sense that we'll be talking about today uh, began in the <laughs> late 16th century. And so that's right, folks. We're not talking about I had a tough time of it. We're talking about definition number two, which is, quote, an ancient test of guilt or innocence by subjection of the accused to severe pain, survival of which was taken as divine proof of innocence. Yeah, it took me a while to get this through my head because I kept suggesting things to Amber and she'd be like, that's not an ordeal. <laughs> no, I was like feeling like a real jerk, but I was like, there really no, is a fine. definition for this. Like, it's just. It's just that I hadn't read that line in the script and I was just like, is this it? Is this it? Am I doing it? (laughs) So even though the etymology hints at a very strong tradition of use in Germanic environments, um, as I learned in researching for this episode, ordeals appear in societies around the world throughout her throughout. I just tried to put horror into history, I think. Horror history. (laughs) Horror history. Um, Ordeals appear in societies around the world throughout history and up to today, as is the case with many topics that involve traditional societies or communities that were eventually subject to colonization and judicial systems imposed by an external force. There are a lot of sources cited out there that I consider dubious, Um, (laughs) so which like made this episode harder than I anticipated. So if we're reading an account written in the late 19th century by a colonial administrator, um, to me, that's like pretty sus. Vicious. Jeez. And so I just, (laughs) I just want to say up top that I made an effort to seek out sources that sought to understand ordeals within a cultural context and like without value judgment. Um, but if this is something that you do dig into on your own, which I really hope is the case, as with yeah, it's all interesting our topics, stuff. Um, mm-hmm. just let me be the voice in the back of your head that says, what's this author doing here? I but, think that should be in the back of everybody's head as they read articles on just, things. Just, or perhaps everything they read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't but, have to be scholarly. To get us going, I will be that voice in the back of Anna's head as As she explains to me what the actual heck people were doing in medieval Europe, which we recently proved on the show existed. So (laughs) the Middle Ages, they're here, they're severe, get used to it. (laughs) Oh boy, where's that picket line? What were they doing in the Middle Ages? I I feel like I want to clarify now what you mean by the fact that we 
proved that the Middle Ages existed. Oh, well, go just back. in case this we, is someone's first about, episode. Yeah, we've talked previously about the phantom time hypothesis. Yeah. Um, in which Where a guy tried didn't happen. Yeah. In right? which a guy tried to argue that um, a, like just shy of 300 years were inserted into the calendar as part of a conspiracy between um, the then king, the then um, Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope because they wanted to be they wanted to be in power at 1000 AD yeah. so they just added it in there but the Middle Ages did happen material culture from those 300 years would suggest <laughs> that people were in fact around and doing things and, and history around <laughs> the rest of the world like also will, that does also prove it but yeah. yeah so Anna tell me what who will become our good friend Peter Leeson mm. mm-hmm. um, said in his essay for Aeon. <laughs> Our friend Peter writes, quote, the only ones who know for sure whether a defendant is guilty or innocent are the defendant himself and God above. Asking the defendant to tell us the truth of the matter is usually useless. Spontaneous confessions by the guilty are rare. But what if we could ask God to tell us instead? And what if we did? And what if it worked? For more than 400 years, between the 9th and the early 13th centuries, that's exactly what Europeans did. In difficult criminal cases, when ordinary evidence was lacking, their legal systems asked God to inform them about defendants' criminal status. The method of their request? Judicial ordeals. If you are squeamish listeners about descriptions of bodily harm, Maybe this isn't the best episode for you. Just putting that out there. This is a slightly better episode for you than several of our episodes lately have been. It's true. I mean, maybe all of Spooktober is perhaps not your bag. (laughs) Judicial ordeals took several forms, from dunking the defendant in a pool of holy water to walking him barefoot across burning plowshares. Among the most popular, however, was the ordeal of boiling water and the ordeal of burning iron. In the former, the defendant plunged his hand into a cauldron of boiling water and fished out a ring. In the latter, he carried a piece of burning iron several paces. A few days later, the defendant's hand was inspected. If it was burned, he was guilty. If not, he was innocent. Judicial ordeals were administered and adjudged by priests in churches as part of special masses. During such a mass, the priest requested God to reveal to the court the defendant's guilt or innocence through the ordeal, letting boiling water or burning iron burn the defendant if he were guilty, performing a miracle that prevented the defendant's hand from being burned if he were innocent. The idea that God would respond to a priest's request in this way reflected a popular medieval belief according to which ordeals were eudicua dei, or judgments of God. Getting God to judge the guilt or innocence of criminal defendants is a pretty nifty trick if you could pull it off. But how could medieval European courts accomplish this? Rather easily, it turns out. (laughs) This one weird trick. (laughs) (laughs) Modern lawyers hate this one weird trick. Suppose you're a medieval European who's been accused of stealing your neighbor's cat. The court thinks you might have committed the theft, but it's not sure. So it orders you to undergo the ordeal of boiling water. Like other medieval Europeans, you believe in Eudicium Dei that a priest, through the appropriate rituals, can call on God to reveal the truth by performing a miracle that prevents the water from burning you if you're innocent, letting you burn if you're not. 
If you undergo the ordeal and God says you're guilty, you have to pay a large fine. If he says you're innocent, you're cleared of the charge and pay nothing. Alternatively, you can avoid undergoing the ordeal by confessing to having stolen the cat, in which case you pay the fine, a bit reduced for having admitted your guilt. This is really game theory. No, that's that's what it is. It, this yeah. is so Peter mm-hmm. Leeson is an economist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's an economist at George Mason. And so, like, which, I don't know if any libertarian listeners are listening to this show. Like, George Mason Hello. is big into, like, free markets. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, this, and the the other, the other um, article that we'll have from Peter Leeson, that kind of comes through a bit more. Okay. But it, it's neat to apply an economics perspective to kind of the psychology of history. Yeah. Economists like getting into like intersecting with history is something that I always find very interesting. And I, mm-hmm. I personally enjoy going to lectures and being like, actually, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I used to work at the business school. And so every once in a while, like somebody would be like, mm-hmm. oh, you, you, you do archaeology. Maybe you should come to this lecture. And then I go and I'm just like, sir, that's not how Egypt worked. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and then we just kind of sit and look at each other for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Nemesis. Uh, so getting back to medieval Europe. And so did you steal that cat? What do you do? Suppose you're guilty. You know you stole your neighbor's cat. And so does God. In this case, you expect that if you undergo the ordeal, God will let the boiling water burn you, evidencing your guilt. Thus, you'll have to pay the large fine and your hand will be boiled to rags to boot. In contrast, if you confess, you'll save a bit of money, not to mention your hand. So if you're guilty, you'll confess. Now, suppose you're innocent. You know you didn't steal your neighbor's cat, and again, so does God. In this case, you expect that if you undergo the ordeal, God will perform a miracle that prevents the boiling water from burning you, evidencing your innocence. Thus, you won't have to pay any fine, and you keep your hand intact. This is better than if you confess to stealing the cat, in which case you'd have to pay a fine for a theft you didn't commit. So if you're innocent, you undergo the ordeal. Did you catch the trick? Because of your belief in Eutychium Dei, the specter of the ordeal leads you to choose one way if you're guilty, confess, and another way if you're innocent, undergo the ordeal, revealing the truth about your guilt or innocence to the court through the choice you make. By asking God to out you, the legal system incentivizes you to out yourself. Which is a nifty trick indeed. Um, I wanted to share it because as I was reading these and and adding things to the script, I had a little memory worm its way to the surface of my brain. Um, And it was a fable that I remember reading in in a book of them as a kid. And it was that uh, a local traveler was asked to, and and this was sort of like in oldie times, a local traveler was asked to kind of adjudicate. um, And there was a, a suspected crime in the local kind of, I guess, manor house or inn or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. And and something had been stolen, right? And so the traveler, who was, I guess, wise in the ways of game theory, um, <laughs> said, well, I happen to have a magical truth-telling chicken. And the thing that you have to do is everyone suspected of the crime has to step into this darkened room with me and Mm. put their hand on the back of this chicken. If the guilty person touches the chicken, it'll go and and then we'll know who's guilty. And so they do this. Everyone in the household kind of trops through the room, 
does the the chicken ordeal and ordeal or no ordeal um no okay uh, so they all go through and do that and then he calls everybody back into the room just like Columbo at the end of a mystery and inspects their hands and what he had done was to blacken the chicken with coal dust and the guilty person figured well it's a dark room no one can see me so I just I'll come in but I won't touch the chicken and so he had clean hands and everyone else had charcoaly sooty hands from touching the chicken and so they were innocent so it's exactly the same thing you you prefer, even though it's less sort of it's less destructive than boiling water or burning oh, iron I'm just gonna walk past my latin joke sorry I didn't hear it you dickiam poly Oh yeah, you do. <laughs> Chicken justice. In any case, it's it's the same phenomenon at yeah, work. Low low stakes ordeal there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not steak, it's chicken. Oh boy. <laughs> Your Latin joke was better. <laughs> Moving on, but only slightly because we're staying in 10th century. So this is, and we'll have this linked on the show notes. This is a series of decrees laying down the law of King Ethelstan, who ruled from 924 to 939 CE. So, oh, so it is the, the 10th century. The, the earliest instance of somebody saying, we stand a king. Hey. Anyway, this is a series of <laughs> decrees laying down the law of King Ethelstan, who ruled from 924 to 939 CE in the period of early English history when all the kings were named Ethel something. It's, there's like an Ethelred and an Ethelran and a... Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, I, I assume it means something in Anglo-Saxon. It mentions ordeals several times. So I've excerpted only a few here because otherwise we would be here all day. There are also many Anglo-Saxon words within this text, which I have opted to translate. But if you'd like to see the original um, text with those words in there, the link will be in the show notes. Also, confusing pronoun alert, because this just sort of with multiple subjects just kind of says he will do this. And so let's muddle through this together. Great. So laws pertaining to witchcrafts. And we have ordained respecting witchcrafts and sorcery and mortal sin. So all three of those were Anglo-Saxon words. It was just like blur and blur and blur. Didn't understand those. If anyone should be thereby killed and he could not deny it, that he be liable in his life. So two people, but it's talking about the person who killed the other person. I can't deny I'm dead. Yeah, I know. That's what it sounds like. Just, it's like if if anyone should be it. thereby killed, <laughs> just like... I uh, undeniably dead. But if he, the murderer, will deny it and at threefold ordeal shall be guilty, so trial by ordeal three times, that he be 120 days in prison and after that let kindred take him out and give to the king 120 shillings and pay the blood price to his kindred, as in the kindred of the murdered person, and enter into debt for him that he evermore desist from the like. So if someone kills someone else, they have to undergo trial and then if they're guilty they go to prison and if they go to prison then the family pays a fine to the king but then also there's a blood price to pay to the family of the murdered person and then the murderer becomes forever sort of life debted to the family of the murdered person i owe you one buddy (laughs) king ethelred nope not ethelred king ethelstan ethelstan you completely like you just like black. I know out when I made that I, joke. I, I did. <laughs> My synapses fused <laughs> on ordeals and oaths in general. 
Ordeals and oaths are forbidden on festival days and lawful fast days, and he who shall break that, let him pay a fine among the Danes and penalty among the English. If it can be so ordered, no one condemned should ever be executed on the Sunday festival, but be secured and held till the festival be gone by. And then maybe the most interesting one of perjurers. Also, we have ordained concerning those men who were perjurers, if that were made evident or an oath failed to them, or were outproved that they afterwards should not be oathworthy, but ordeal worthy. So if you've shown yourself multiple times to be untrustworthy through breaking an oath or defying a law, the only way hereafter you're going to make an accepted confession or or your your innocence is going to be proven is through ordeal. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, I boil you, I guess. <laughs> I was on Twitter. I saw a tweet that was like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Hey, man, that's messed up. I'm pretty dumb. <laughs> uh, so for a final kind of viewpoint on... <laughs> ordeal and possibly the best just one line story <laughs> paint, painting a picture that I've come across in a while. We turn to BBC News and the just very Englishly named Duncan Leatherdale. Wow. And also this opening line, V British. <laughs> as daft as they might sound as a means of determining guilt, Ordeals performed a, a useful social function, according to Dr. Will Eaves, a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews School of History. Uh, Dr. Eaves says, quote, from a 21st century point of view, it's very easy to look and say this was just the stupidity of earlier people. But that would be wrong. There is much more nuance to it. Oh, it's like said, the tagline of our whole show. Will, will Eaves has spent a lot of time like with his like extended family. Being like, yeah. no, this isn't a waste of time. Like, I'm not were a professional people really student. really very short <laughs> in the past? There were two forms. There were two main forms of ordeal, fire and water, with God being seen as determining guilt through the result. And so this is a little bit different from what we read above, but similarly ouchy. For fire, the accused had to carry a red hot bar of iron and walk nine feet. If the wound healed cleanly within three days, they were innocent. I wonder if there was a rule about how quickly they had to walk. Could they like scoot nine feet and then go, ow, ow, ow. Um, but if the wound festered, they would be guilty. With water, the accused was plunged into a pool of cold water on a rope which had a knot tied into it a long hair's length away from the defendant. If they sank to the depth of the knot, the water was deemed to be accepting them at God's behest. They were therefore innocent and dragged out before they drowned. But if they floated, the water was rejecting them, rendering them guilty. The key to the ordeal was the interpretation of the result. The community would probably have had a good idea if someone had committed the crime or not, so would interpret accordingly, says Dr. Eaves. And he goes on to say, quote, In a trial by hot iron, the issue wasn't if the iron had caused a wound, but rather how it had healed. So that's a much more nuanced issue, much more open to interpretation. Whether the wound was festering was a judgment which could be influenced by the community's knowledge of the individual involved and their awareness of the broader circumstances of the case. Even in trial by water, the extent to which a person sank may have been open to interpretation, especially if they were thrashing around and the rope was being pulled in all directions. End quote. Another option was trial by combat or wager of battle, a fight between the accused and their accuser, which was introduced to England by the Normans in 1066. God would grant the moral victor the strength to vanquish the person who wronged them. 
But there's an obvious flaw. Some people are simply better at fighting than others. So a party could choose a champion to fight on their behalf. But again, this favors richer folks who could afford to pay for a better fighter. Historian Professor John Hudson says, quote, It was as obvious to them as it is to us that big guys would beat the little guy, and they were concerned about it. End quote. Just concerned. Um, and trial by combat actually remained in English law until 1819, although its use had dwindled over the centuries. Maybe the best part of this whole piece. In 2002, a man demanded trial by combat to resolve a motoring fine, but magistrates rejected his appeal and find him. So while we all sit with that for a minute, let's have a quick ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. Well, thanks, Anna, for walking us through all of that. You're welcome. Um, I can confidently say that I knew nothing about any of what we just discussed before I started working on this episode, because the one thing I knew anything about in the wide world of ordeals was the river <laughs> ordeal in Mesopotamia. Oh, no way. Yeah. I didn't know anything. About, like, I thought that I, I, I thought that like the river ordeal like was what an ordeal was. And just like somehow we ended up the word ordeal in English Came meant from that. no, like like not that it was like a like that it had its like linguistic roots in Mesopotamia or something, but just that like we used the word ordeal like as we would like you mm-hmm. know if I called my internet service provider and we just <laughs> and they just applied it Do you to have this something thing. You want to talk about? Are you happy no. with your service? <laughs> included in my rent so I have no complaints um, I'm just trying to think of something that's like universally like yeah that, despised I, um but I thought that I thought it was just like a like silly like co-opting of like an existing English word and applied to an old mm-hmm, practice historical. yeah for a second there in the script I thought capital R river ordeal was the name of a river in Mesopotamia. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which also would make sense. Like the river ordeal, like the yeah, river Euphrates. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. I still remember the first day that I learned about it, um, like where I was like sitting there um, and I probably when I was translating the Codex Hammurabi for doing your little homework yeah. yeah and so my dictionary just like super casually was like the river ordeal to which this ever ready for a diversion from her Acadian homework student said 
Uh, go on. <laughs> Tell me more. So in Mesopotamia, there are several examples of the river ordeal spanning more than 2000 years um, and a whole lot of geography. So we have reason to think that this was a fairly established method of determining guilt, because if mm-hmm. you're seeing it over lots of time in lots of places, it's not as though they forgot about it or people didn't carry it with them. Right, it's as not, a, not a one hit wonder. Yeah. The most famous example, as I hinted at above, comes from the mm. Codex Hammurabi. Um, remember, Hammurabi was a king, an old Babylonian king. So it was the old Babylonian empire, um, specifically in like the mid 18th century BCE. And the one in question is the second one mentioned. So I clearly hadn't gotten very deep into my homework. <laughs> just like throwing it out the <laughs> Ten window. minutes in, you're like, ooh. Yeah. Something um, shiny over there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read from like a ye olden translation. Yeah. Um, so it's a little clunky. But Well, so, I, so was that Anglo Saxon one, so you got nothing to worry about. <laughs> um If anyone bring an accusation against a man and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possessions of his house. Oh, well, Um, I mean, he he probably doesn't need it. He sank in the river. But if the river proved that the accused is not guilty and he escape unhurt, then he who had brought the accusation shall be put to death while he leap while he who leaped into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to his accuser. So don't make these accusations lightly, I guess. I, yeah. And again, like it, I can never say often enough that like the Codex Hammurabi wasn't actually a legal code. Um, no, it was a it was a uh, like a propaganda. It thing, was right? it was just sort of like Hammurabi is such a like top notch king. Look at all this kinging he's doing. Like, look at all this. And so he's it, kinging so hard. It gives you like a sense of like social mores and like gotcha. relative. Okay status of things relative severity of like different perceived crimes and stuff like that but, but it, you wouldn't walk into a courtroom with a copy of the codex hammurabi yeah and they say like well according to the codex hammurabi in this case you you know Jump usually like river. will well no like usually like your son will be put to death uh, like kind of thing because Yikes. you because you killed his son like kind of thing it's it's okay. sort of like that okay. that that's kind of what it's going for um but what it does illustrate is one of the key uses for an ordeal that i think savvy listeners will have already picked up one from the examples we've given so far um and that's false accusations mm-hmm. so like things for which you can't have tangible proof um and so you know, if you have like a murder and you'd be like, well, I do know that like they hate each other and this <laughs> guy's like knife is missing now and he was stabbed. Like mm. that's something that you probably don't need an ordeal for. But if it's something like lying or adultery or what we could call magical malpractice, mm-hmm. um, like where it's something that's much more ephemeral uh, or just like a a like they said, they said situation. Like it's, right. that's where you'd want to have an ordeal. Um, so whereas in European water ordeals, the innocent are accepted by the water and the guilty rejected up to the surface. In Mesopotamia, the river would support the innocent. So hold them up by floating right. or sweep away or drown the guilty. Innocence is buoyant. That checks out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so generally this took place in a deified river, such as the Euphrates. So uh, the deified river, so the it would be id is the Sumerian word for river. Um, mm-hmm. But you can have 
But so there's the concept of the cosmic river id. Right. It's the sense that there is a, a being that embodies that river. Yeah. So there's a general one that just is like. It's the, the water. Yes. Like, um, and, and sort of like a creation sense, but then there are the like river deities. So the Euphrates was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so the river God, so it would be like, you know, the, the id Euphrates. Like if I okay. were back home, it'd be like the id Tigert you'd be thrown into. Um, <laughs> and so that would, that deity is the arbiter of guilt or innocence. So, it's the one, the river is the one making the decision. It's not a proxy for some other divine force, as in the case with like Christian no. contexts. Right. The river is the divine force. Yeah. Okay. So that, huh. that could have been like the entire episode if I hadn't done more research <laughs> and like, Good that's, night, the, that's an ordeal. <laughs> uh, but isn't that like, I don't know, kind of silly that I thought that like, there are all these types of ordeals and I just only knew about one and just like went with it. And why, like, but Amber, surely these things were happening in other, with other groups of people. <laughs> I, just, I don't know who thinks to throw somebody in a river. Apparently lots of people, but lots of people tell me about some other kinds of ordeals, Anna, because we don't be even happy just to do that. Fire and water. We got, no, we got beans. <laughs> I mean, uh, this sounds awful and I'm not laughing at that, but ordeal by bean. So this is the use of the calabar bean in West Africa. The calabar bean is the seed of, oh, it's a seed, not a bean, but it is a bean. That's confusing. We're not getting into like a literally into the avocado is a nut nonsense. It is absolutely not. It's a fruit. Listeners can't see it, but I'm like, <laughs> making my she's life. making knife hands at me. <laughs> so the calabar bean is the seed of a climbing leguminous plant, scientifically known as Physostigma venenosum, Ooh. and it is poisonous to humans when chewed. However, if you swallow the whole bean intact, it might prevent the release of its toxins. Hold on to that. Put a pin in that thought. The plant, indigenous to the coastal area of southeastern Nigeria, known as Calabar, was first noticed by white people in 1846, though it took until 1861 for botanists, white people, to describe it. Its scientific name, Physostigma venenosum, came from the appearance of, quote, a snooping beak-like solid appendage at the end of the stigma. It took them 15 years to come up with that. It's got a droopy nose. (laughs) The plant is a large herbaceous perennial vine with a woody stem at the base. It produces a large purplish flower with intricate visible veins. Once pollinated, the flowers yield a thick brown pod of a fruit, which contains two or three large kidney-shaped seeds. So these are the beans, which are seeds. The seeds ripen throughout the year. However, it's not until rainy season, June through September, that the plant is able to produce its best, most toxic beans. (laughs) Calabar beans contain alkaloids, um, the most potent of which are calabarine with atropine-like effects. So if you have listened to, did we do a bonus episode about poisons or was this a, we've talked about sort of like psychotropic plants before, but we have talked about atropine before and it's a paralytic um, and it can be very, very dangerous. Uh, And another chemical, physostigmine. The poisonous properties of the calabar bean are almost exclusively due to the presence of physostigmine alkaloid, which acts on the nervous system. 
This compound disrupts communication between the nerves and organs. In this regard, it acts similarly to nerve gas, which results in contraction of the pupils, profuse salivation, convulsions, seizures, spontaneous urination and defecation, loss of control over the respiratory system, and ultimately death by asphyxiation, which is horrifying. So keep in mind um, what I said up top about uh, poisonous when chewed, but maybe okay if intact. So this is a little bit from a piece published by improbably Montana Public Radio. Hey, right, what so, you know, Montana. I know, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Quote, the Efik people of the region that is now Nigeria used to force people accused of crimes to suffer a trial by ordeal. They'd be fed calabar beans, a known poison. If the accused died, they were judged guilty. If they lived, they were proven innocent. And there's some pharmaceutical basis to this. It turns out that the poison of the calabar bean is absorbed in the mouth, where a guilty person might try to hold on to the beans in their mouth to avoid swallowing. For the guileless who swallowed them whole, the emetic properties of the bean might cause them to throw up the beans and escape poisoning. So if you chomp it down really fast, the likely response that your body will have will be to immediately throw up. But if you're like and trying to hold the bean in your mouth and not swallow that you have a lot of absorbent tissue in your mouth, like it'll get into your bloodstream and that's not good. So it's kind of a mix of psychology and and chemistry there. Wow. Yeah. So one more similarly plant based ordeal. And this is uh, the ordeal of Tangena. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It could be Tangena. Madagascar is beyond my comprehension. It is an amazingly syllabic language, like names. So there was in the article I found for this, it listed like names of kings and queens of of Madagascar, and they were fourteen syllables long. It was wild. Um, There, I someone in a department sort of adjacent to mine who had a Malagasy last name, mm-hmm. a first name too, but like, I, <laughs> presumably, but, but, but she was like, I was only using her last name. We weren't friends. Um, right. 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 But I, I understood just, your like, context. So, so scared to like ever refer yeah, to her or be like professor so-and-so oh. or like, <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, it's cause it, it wasn't oh, that would even, make me sweat. Yeah. It wasn't even like, it was one of those names where like saying somebody saying it once for you, like, isn't enough. Cause you're like, okay. But it's just, yeah, it's just, uh, they are quite long. Yeah. But on Wikipedia, there's a like wiki tongues, like, but on the, the Wikipedia entry for Malagasy, there's a video where you can like watch a woman speaking Malagasy. And I think she might be reading the Wikipedia entry. Oh, um, <laughs> that's cool. And meta. Yeah. But I don't, I want to listen to that. Cause I don't think I've ever heard Malagasy spoken. It's an Austronesian language. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Tangena, but um, listeners, if you know if you something know. about this pronunciation, please tell us. That probably means you know something else too. So yeah. Tell us all your stuff. <laughs> you just like all of a sudden turned into the knowledge goblin. <laughs> give me your knowledge. And I will give you gold. Okay. Uh, this ordeal, Tangena ordeal is most famously associated with Queen Rana Valona, who was ruler of the Kingdom of Madagascar from 1828 to 1861. She did not originate this process. The first documented account is from the 1600s, and she was for sure not a 200-year-old queen. But she is definitely historically known for using it. 
So Queen Rana Valona's policies centered around getting rid of those pesky French and British colonial types and ridding her island of Christianity. She wanted the island to be able to look after itself and be left alone to do so. To help complete her mission, she ruled with an unrelenting iron fist. She cracked down on foreign trade and increased forced labor. She extended her realm and executed anyone who gave her any trouble. The Tangana ordeal was much like the Calabar bean ordeal, except that the poison in question was extracted from the nuts of the Tangana tree, or Cerbera mangas, the sea mango, which, which sounds me, lovely. That, to me, makes me think of sea snakes, which makes me think of neurotoxins. That is a an interesting thought process that you have there. Why do mangoes make you think of snakes? No, sea mango makes me think of sea snake. Why couldn't it make you think of something innocuous because like a sea cucumber? Because we're talking about... Po- ah! I don't want something that like spits out its intestine at me. All right. Uh, sea lion. Okay. I think because we've been talking... We talked about neurotoxins above and then we're t- still talking about toxins. And sea snakes are... Their venom is a neurotoxin. Is a potent neurotoxin. Yes, I know. Which, okay. No, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, in any case, the name Cerbera mangas does come from, uh, because this is a known toxin, um, it comes from Cerberus, the, the three-headed guard doggy from Hades. Um, so anyway, the sea mango uh, would be fed to the unfortunate person who had fallen afoul of the queen's laws. Um, so it's the poison is it's extracted from the nuts. It's not like they force fed them. Um, Chemical compounds in this extract target certain ion channels in the heart, triggering cardiac arrest. Even in small amounts, the poison is usually fatal. Renavalona made ample use of the Tangana ordeal, which is really saying something, considering that it has been estimated that the poison may have been responsible for the death of as much as 2% of the population of the central province of Madagascar each year on average. Residents of Madagascar could accuse one another of various crimes, including theft, Christianity, and especially witchcraft, for which the ordeal of Tangana was routinely obligatory. On average, an estimated 20 to 50 percent of those who underwent the ordeal died. In the 1820s, the Tangana ordeal caused about 1,000 deaths annually. This average rose to around 3,000 annual deaths between 1828 and 1861. In 1838, it was estimated that as many as 100,000 people in Imerina died as a result of the Tangana ordeal, constituting roughly 20% of the population. And um, Um, Imerina is that central province. It's ah. sort of where the seat of power was. And the, so the Tangana ordeal was outlawed by Ranavalona's heir, Radama II, in 1863, but it persisted in secret, albeit on a much smaller scale. So two things that you should not eat. By now, it's probably pretty clear <laughs> that there are a few types of ordeal to which one can be subjected. We discussed- nope, just the river. Just the, just the, just the river. Specifically the, only, the Euphrates. Specifically the Euphrates. There, that is the only one. Um, so we discussed fire already in the sense of holding something that had been in the fire or running across something that had been heated in fire. Uh, but in, in ancient Persia, so ancient Iran, really, and then later in ancient Persia, um, the ordeal <laughs> involved the direct source. So according to Encyclopedia Iranica, quote, fire was also used judicially. In ancient Iran, those accused of lying or breach of contract might be required as an ultimate test to establish their innocence by submitting to a solemnly 
administered ordeal by fire. <laughs> yeah, you don't want an ordeal by fire where everyone's giggling. It's just like a madcap ordeal by fire. A whimsical ordeal by fire. Tee <laughs> In one such ordeal, the accused had to pass through fire and another molten metal was poured onto Ah! his bare breast. And Ah. there are said to have been some 30 kinds of fiery tests in all. In each case, if the accused died, he was held to have been guilty. If he survived, (laughs) if he survived, he was innocent, having been protected by Mithra and other divine beings. The mildest form of such ordeals required the accused to take a solemn oath as he did so to drink a potion containing sulfur, a fiery substance which, it was thought, would burn him inwardly if he committed perjury. Or just give him really severe gas. Fire thus acquired an association with truth and hence with Asha. And and Asha is sort of like the holy fire of mm-hmm. Mithra. The ancient Iranian cosmogonists regarded fire, moreover, as the seventh creation, forming the life force, as it were, within the other six, and so animating the world. Fire was thus of great theoretical, ethical, ritual, and practical importance in ancient Iranian life and thought, end quote. Hmm. So in ancient India, we see a case of fire ordeal in the Sanskrit epic, epic Ramayana, which is thought to predate the Mahabharata. And it's one of the the other like big Sanskrit epic uh, and has origins in the middle of the first millennium BC. Um, And so in it, there's a description of the Agni Pariksha, an ordeal by fire. So at this point in the story, Rama's wife Sita was back after having been abducted by Ravana. Um, So despite trusting her, Uh, If I understand correctly, Rama tells Sita to prove her chastity during her abduction by going to the fire and seeing if she's burned. So she's supposed to walk into the fire. She goes into a a, like sacrificial pyre. And so the fire deity Agni keeps her safe from the fire, thus proving her innocence. Do you think is the word ignite etymologically related to this? It's probably um, comes from Sanskrit, maybe. Well, no, it would come from Proto-Indo-European. Oh, right. Right. Sorry. Moment of moment of silly. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So like igneous, agnite, agni, probably same, same. Huh. Um, so most of the ordeals we talked about involve divine jurisdiction, which is kind of one of the like the big points of it. But let's mm-hmm. take a, a look at one that seems a bit more down to earth, as it were. Haha, <laughs> that is joke. You will see soon, listeners, <laughs> because we're I talking call about a call forward <laughs> <laughs> or a segue, a segue. We're talking ordeal of the turf, specifically in Iceland. Uh, this is from the article Ordeal in Iceland by William Ian Miller that was published in the journal Scandinavian Studies. A short little trip to Iceland, and then we will take another quick ad break and then wrap everything up. So, historically, Iceland had a pretty robust judicial system. So, as the author says in the article, quote, ordeal was there to be used in a pinch, end quote. There's no, there's no pinching that happens in this ordeal. So, try to visualize this. There aren't any pictures in the article, and the description, frankly, is not all that helpful, but... The ordeal is described as a process of cutting out a block of turf and propping it up so that its ends were still fastened to the ground. I don't understand how, like, how you prop it up 
so that its ends are still in the, I don't know, but I'm picturing the classic baited box and stick trap. I have no <laughs> idea if that's right, but you know, like if I you prop if up like, like a laundry yeah. basket. And, I wonder if it would yeah, be yeah. like two strips that you like, but also how do oh, you get you, enough purchase between the. I don't know. The saw it in the ground. It's not. Yeah. Um, So the accused person has to walk under the layer of turf, which presumably is quite big and heavy. If the turf falls on him, guilty. Also, ow. If not, he is presumed innocent. Well, I guess like if he's proven guilty, you don't have to worry about like a burial. You know, and it also didn't say how big the strip of turf was. So it could just be like he gets clonked on the head, but he's fine. Right. Or buried alive. (laughs) It's a spectrum. So the article goes on to relay a couple of accounts of this ordeal. Lots of quoting in Icelandic, which I was not able to translate. (laughs) But what it really comes down to in both related cases is the two disputing groups then have an argument about who made the turf fall. And then everybody gets into a big fist fight. So maybe this whole ordeal thing was a a formalized way of getting two arguing parties together to have it out in circumstances where a dispute was too fraught for regular court, or if they just didn't want to bring it to court. I don't know. I don't know. It's much like this slab of turf. The interpretation is up in the air. I also, um, I really liked this scene in West Side Story where the, the jets and the sharks had an ordeal by turf <laughs> that's that's how they had their rumble <laughs> everyone just snapped their way up to the <laughs> to the big block of turf <laughs> <Da-da, da-da. laughs> oh let's have an ad huh okay <laughs> This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. So for our next ordeal... We are back in what is today India, but a very different part of India. So, um, you know how India, you know, real you big, know, you know, well, India, very big. Yes. But you know how India do. Yep. But you know how there's the the, the main trapezoid. Yeah. I was going to say of, triangle, but not really. Yeah. So there's the the main the like the main part of the Indian subcontinent that is yes. the modern state of India. But then there's a bit more India that's like further <laughs> east. Bonus India. Yeah, yes. like on the other side of Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um so that's where we are. And so this is in Manipur. And Manipur is one of the states there. And we're talking okay. about the Khoirang. And so the Khoirang people are an indigenous population and a scheduled tribe in India. So scheduled tribes are um, like um, indigenous minority groups. 
Okay. Um, and so there's- I've never heard that term. Yeah. So there's a, a there are many different scheduled tribes that are in, they're, they're called like the Indian Hill Tribes. And I don't know if that is, I have trouble thinking it's not pejorative, but- I, but maybe not. But but maybe it's not. But this ah, is yeah. Th- these are like hard to know. Um, there's like Nagaland and Assam and Manipur. Like these are all like regions in this part. And so a lot of the there's like cultural similarities and like linguistic similarities with other like Sino-Tibetan groups. Oh, interesting. And so it's okay. all in sort of like the foothills of the Himalayas. So it's sort of think about and that's sort of on the border with like Burma, Myanmar. So it's very different from the India of the Ramayana, like a very yeah, yeah. different, like culturally, linguistically, historically. So while the Khoirang people are predominantly Christian today, as are a lot of groups in this area, um, they have a history of a really rich spiritual practice. And I couldn't find out a lot of information about them. And I don't know if they're just like understudied or understudied and published in English or what. But in an article that was published in 2017 in the Sangai Express, which is the largest newspaper circulated in Manipur. All right. Just cool. Yeah. So I like looked it up and I was like, okay. Um, The Khoirangs, like any other neighboring tribes, practice the swearing of oath. Taking an oath is a solemn appeal to Pathian, who's there, who is God, the monogamous, monogamous, monotheist. (laughs) A monogamous monogamous relationship with, yeah. Uh, Monotheistic. God. So uh, to sanction the truth of a judgment when Huo or village fails to determine the real culprit, it is an ancient form of referring a disputed question to the judgment of God by fire, water, etc. Sounds f- familiar. Yeah. The forms of ordeals are practiced by the Quarangs. They are as follows. One, chachai but, trial by cooking rice. And two, tuililut, trial by diving. One of those sounds more dangerous to me. Both seem like they could get dangerous. So in the trial by cooking rice, two packets of rice made with banana leaves are separately placed inside a pot containing water. Each packet has its own identity in relation to the person who is to take the oath. The pot is heated and the rice is cooked. Then the rice packets inside the pots are examined. The man whose packet contains the fully cooked rice or like edible rice is judged innocent. And the owner of the other packet, which is not yet fully cooked, is judged guilty. The trial is repeated to find out the divine judgment. So if you're innocent, you get bonus rice. Get rice and your innocence. Great. Yeah. So trial by diving is the most popular form of ordeal among the hill tribes of Manipur. Among the Korangs, before the ordeal takes place, a buffalo is kept as a security by each party. Buffalo deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, the security will not be refunded. The loser doesn't get their buffalo yeah, back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so if security is not kept by one party, the ordeal will not take place. So if you don't have a buffalo. Both both people need to opt into it. A yep. pool or tank or river is selected for the go to the Euphrates for the purpose <laughs> of the direction of the village chief and members of the village council. The two persons in the contest 
dive into the water simultaneously and will stay underwater as long as they can in the presence of the village chief and the members of the village council who act as judges. All the villagers may come and witness the ordeal. The person who comes out of the water first is held guilty. The man who stays under the water longer is declared innocent or not guilty. It is important to note that in all these ordeals, the offering of rice beer to God is to be performed by the village chief at the beginning of the ordeal. Huh. So, um, and I found some, like, some of those, like, such and such Smithington, like, wrote in, like, 1885 about, like, the, like, ordeal by diving in Siam and, like, things like, I couldn't, uh, yeah, but, yeah. but I've seen references elsewhere that, like, ordeal by diving is something that's done elsewhere in, in places. Southeast huh. Asia, uh, but I couldn't find f- reliable things about it. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so let's hop to another continent. Hop. Um, we are hearing again from our friend Peter Leeson. Uh, and he, he jumps right in media res, saying, quote, The chiefs gave the signal, everything now being ready, for the beginning of the most essential and serious part of the water ordeal. The man who was appointed to administer the water took a large calabash, which is like a, a gourd, measuring about a pint, filled it quite full with the prepared water. He then filled another till the accused had consumed five. Then the accused wished for some respite, which being granted, he directly began to vomit and threw up a great deal of water. This scene describes a judicial ordeal, that peculiar and astonishing form of criminal trial made famous by Dark Age era Europeans. But this ordeal didn't take place in Dark Age Europe. It took place in early modern Sierra Leone. The accused, on trial for murder, guzzled poison. His death, or near death, would have indicated his guilt. His expulsion of the poison indicated his innocence. This ordeal played a central role in early modern African criminal justice systems. People called it Sassy Wood. On its surface, Sassy Wood is preposterous. Trial by poison ingestion is the very picture of primitive barbarism. It hardly seems like a sensible foundation for criminal justice. On the contrary, Sassywood seems like the foundation for assured criminal injustice. This impression has led the international community to decry Sassywood's use in Liberia as an unconscionable violation of human rights. At the international community's urging, the Liberian government recently banned the ordeal. This ban may have come at a considerable cost. According to recent fieldwork, quote, the vast majority of Liberians raised very serious concerns that the ban on Sassy Wood's use is causing, is causing significant societal problems, most particularly the inability to control crime, end quote. Some Liberians continue to use Sassy Wood, but these persons do so illegally. No one in the developed world believes that Sassy Wood is a sensible institution of Liberian criminal justice. The theory this paper provides offers a plausible explanation of why, given the current institutional environment and likely problems of transplanting effective formal institutions in Liberia, Sassy Wood may be just that. We argue that Sassy Wood is a constrained institutional optimum for Liberian criminal justice. Sassywood's persistence reflects an institutional response to the, the Liberian government's failure to produce effective, formal criminal justice. Trial by poison ingestion may be a sensible institutional substitute for that justice. To be effective, criminal justice institutions must satisfy three conditions. They must be accessible to citizens, incentivize judicial administrators to pursue justice instead of private ends, and generate useful information about the accused criminal's guilt or innocence. 
Liberia's formal criminal justice institutions fail to satisfy these conditions. Sassywood does a better job of fulfilling them. Sassywood is more accessible than Liberia's formal criminal justice institutions. It provides judicial administrators stronger incentives to pursue justice. And, unexpectedly, Sassywood is capable of generating useful information about criminal defendants' guilt or innocence where Liberia's formal criminal justice institutions don't. Though highly imperfect and far less effective than formal criminal justice institutions in developed countries, such as the United States, Compared to Liberia's institutional alternative, Liberia's formal criminal justice system, Sassywood provides more effective criminal justice. In securing more effective criminal justice, Sassywood improves Liberian property security, making Liberians better off. And so when I mentioned at the top of the show, yeah, like where yeah, libertarians and, and property security. Yep. Not knocking the idea here of like having community driven alternatives to like ineffective like top-down states like that sort of also fits into this i read i read a i read an interview with him for reason magazine from like 10 years ago and like it's sort of like looking at that so it's really interesting it's an interesting it's an interesting take and he makes a good point he does yeah absolutely so we've talked a lot about a lot of ordeals from all over the place today, but there's even more in the show notes that we couldn't get to today. So there's yeah. the swimming of witches in early modern Hungary. There's, Sounds fun. There's the Bisha'ah among the Bedouin communities of the Western Mediterranean. There's the Magarada in Arnhem Land in Australia. There's the Sota ordeal of bitter water in the Hebrew Bible. And even more. So if there's one thing we can learn from this week's episode, it's that anytime, anywhere, we want to know who's lying and we want to be able to catch them in it. And we want to jump in a river. Specifically. The Euphrates. <laughs> uh, so we'll leave you this week with an article in Europe's Journal of Psychology entitled Historical Techniques of Lie Detection, whose abstract reads as follows. Since time immemorial, lying has been a part of everyday life. <laughs> uh uh for, no, this re- for this reason, it has become a subject of interest in several disciplines, including psychology. The purpose of this article is to provide a general overview of the literature and thinking to date about the evolution of lie detection techniques. The first part explores ancient methods recorded circa 1000 BC, e.g. God's judgment in Europe. The second part describes technical methods based on sciences such as phrenology, polygraph, and graphology. This is followed sciences in heavy quotes. This is followed by an outline of more modern day approaches such as facts, um, the facial <laughs> action coding system, functional MRI, and brain fingerprinting. Brain printing. Finally, you think it would be brain right, printing. You would think. Finally, after the familiarization with the historical development of techniques for lie detection, we discussed the scope for new initiatives, not only in the area of designing new methods, but also the research of, into lie detection itself, such as its motives and regulatory issues related to deception. So, listeners, I recommend huh. you check that out, especially if you want to keep thinking about themes of guilt and belief. Um, and so I've seen polygraph tests categorized as a form of ordeal. And after all that we thought about today, like they might be onto something Um, yeah. because it's not because like polygraph tests are heavily informed by the state of the testee. Right. Yeah. It depends on your particular heart rate, your. Yeah. If you think that you're right, 
you will pass Your body the signs will, will if, go if along you, with that. If you are scared, like if you feel guilty, yeah. it will read as guilty. So that that's something that is sort of not... It's not too far removed from everything we've talked about. And so with that, we hope you are sufficiently averse to wrongdoing, at least until next week, when we'll be back with the chilling conclusion to this year's Spooktober extravaganza. So in the meantime, you can leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts if you've not done so already. And you might hear it at the top of the show. Yay. Um, and you can also find us on social media, on Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And Insta, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can see all of that together in one place at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find merch and a way to contact us, which you can also do at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And even more stuff. So much stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. Thank you, listeners, as always. And we'll be back in your ears very soon. And we love you. Goodbye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.